Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Friday, October 13th, 2023 edition of On Iowa Politics. On the podcast this week, we listen in on an Iowa Ideas discussion about how Iowans can navigate the culture wars that have become prevalent in our state and across the country. Hello, everyone. I'm Aaron Murphy, the Des Moines Bureau Chief for the Gazette in Cedar Rapids. The Gazette's annual Iowa Ideas Conference was held this week on Thursday and Friday. And that event, quite frankly, chewed up a lot of time for some of your favorite political podcasters you normally find here. So we thought it would be great instead to share with you this week one of the Iowa Ideas sessions. And one in particular on navigating the culture wars in Iowa. Some of the issues that are discussed are definitely topics that we've covered in our reporting and and discussed here on this podcast. So we thought it was the perfect discussion to share with you here on the podcast. And our very own Todd Dorman moderated the session. So here it is, the Iowa Ideas 2023 session on navigating the culture wars. File in from the waiting room. Uh, I'm Todd Dorman. I'm the uh, opinion page editor and a columnist at at the Gazette. And uh, this is, in case you know you don't want to be in the wrong class, this is navigating Iowa's culture war, which uh, you know obviously is going to deal with some of the the political debates and struggles that we've had in Iowa over a lot of topics: gender identity, books in school libraries, how businesses and institutions of higher learning deal with uh, diversity, diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, uh, how you know, teach what kind of curriculum teachers are allowed to teach with regard to LGBTQ and also uh, American history, not not teaching divisive concepts that that make some folks uncomfortable, particularly pertaining to race. So there's a lot of ground to cover. And we've, we've got two panelists that are more than capable of covering that ground. Uh, I'm going to give them a, a chance to introduce themselves now and tell you uh, what, a little bit about what they what they do. Uh, Stacy, you can go first. Hi, everyone. I'm Stacey Kimberlin. I work for an organization called Culture All. I'm the director of DEI planning there. My pronouns are she, her. I come from a background as a classroom teacher. For the last seven years, I've been with Culture All working with our ambassador programs, our open book programs, which are all about relationship building, story sharing, personal narrative, um, emotional engagement, empathy. Our mission is to lead communities to value our diversity. And I'm really thrilled to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Okay, Keenan. Yeah, my name is Keenan Crow. I use they and them pronouns. I'm the director of policy and advocacy at One Iowa, which is a statewide LGBTQ advocacy organization. And uh, I think I'm best known in in that capacity. If you followed um, the recent legislation, you probably heard something from me in the uh relatively recent past. Um, The other um, passion that I have, though, is uh, another community that I feel is unfairly demonized, and that is people who use drugs. Um, So I've, in that capacity, been on the board of the Iowa Harm Reduction Coalition, um, sentencing structures around uh, drug policies, my graduate research is on, and so um, have done various things in both of those spaces uh, over the last decade or so. Okay. Uh, And and Keenan, I'm going to start with you. We you know, over the last several years, we've seen a lot of bills filed at the Capitol uh, aimed at LGBTQ Iowans, transgender Iowans in particular, restrictions on what public facilities they can use and and uh, gender affirming care and and uh, and, and those sorts of things. Uh, 
but you know a lot of that stuff didn't pass it it was you know it got it was stopped in the process but this past legislative session we just saw the sort of the dam break and things actually became law what what do you what do you think changed uh, I think there's two kind of major things that I can attribute it to, maybe a few other minor things, but I'll stick to my major points. Um, so number one is that there is a nationwide moral panic happening, particularly around transgender folks, but LGBTQ folks more broadly, right? All of the bills that passed here in Iowa uh, were introduced and often passed in about 20 other states um, as well as Iowa, right? We started off the... Uh, year with I think two or three gender affirming care bans and now there's 15 um, in in the country so this is not an Iowa specific uh, situation the dam has broken kind of in every uh, red trifecta all across the country all at once which really limits the ability for folks to push back um, because what are they going to say oh you can't relocate to half the country right like that's that's a tough pill to swallow uh, number two, in, in Iowa specifically, uh, I think one of the things that we can point to are the primary elections of 2022, not even necessarily the general, but obviously giving folks more seats in the legislature doesn't uh, bode well when those seats are filled with folks who are not interested in uh, protecting LGBTQ rights. But I think even if that general had gone that way, if the folks who were ousted in the primary had kept their seats, the damage wouldn't have been nearly as significant, right? I'm thinking in particular, um, just one case study is Dustin Haidt, um, who was the former chair of the uh, House Education Committee. I wouldn't say he's an LGBTQ ally in any way, shape, or form, but he was certainly more of a moderate, right? He th This was not his top issue to pass. And he was ousted by the governor's efforts and replaced uh, by Helena Hayes, who runs an anti-LGBTQ hate group called Protect My Innocence. And so when you have folks who, you know, the chairs that were previously filled with moderates and then are now uh, filled with extremists who this is like their bread and butter issue, of course, we're going to see the dam break, right? We have removed all of... Uh, the barriers to those things advancing. And so those are the two big things I would say that contributed to the dam breaking this year. And the, uh, and, and Haidt was, was beat in a primary along with some other Republicans because they didn't support the, uh, the okay. school, private school voucher, education savings account, whatever you'd yep. like to call it. I mean, that has a, that also has a sort of a culture war aspect to it, doesn't it? Because I mean, a lot of the schools that are private are also religious schools. Yeah, absolutely. We found, um, so uh, the interns and I did a big old research project. Uh, and we, we went through every private school handbook that we could get our hands on. And I think we got our hands on something around 95 to 98%, some, some really, really high number. And what we found in the ones that we went through was about 75% of those private schools either explicitly or implicitly say that LGBTQ people are not welcome. That could be anything from literally saying just LGBTQ people are not welcome to something a little bit more covert, right? Saying that you have to agree with our stance on uh, sexual morality and then having a separate thing about sexual morality saying that it doesn't apply to uh, people in same-sex marriages, things like that. Or um, 
saying things like, you know, our uh, bullying policy applies to these classes and not those classes, or, uh, you know, there's various ways that that gets communicated, but about 75% of them, so three quarters, um, in some way communicated that LGBTQ people weren't welcome. Wasn't one of the other changes that happened in the legislature that in previous years, the, the business community, some of your large business lobbying groups uh, spoke out against some of the, the, the legislation aimed at transgender kids and, and, and Iowans, uh, you know, because they didn't want the state to look appear unwelcoming because that would be that would be bad for business. It would be bad for bringing in conventions and events. Uh, they that just sort of seemed to evaporate. What what do you what do you make of that? Yeah, I don't think it's totally fair to say that it evaporated, right? Um, I think what what is a more accurate depiction is that there are some issues they're willing to engage in and some that they really are not willing to engage in. So, for instance, the religious exemption stuff, uh, RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, those kinds of things, they've always been with us on those. And they were with us again this year. That, that um, was stopped largely because of... Uh, business folks speaking up. And there are, are are several others as well. If there's kind of like a one-to-one relationship with one of their employees, right? Like this law is going to impact our employee. They are typically willing to go to bat on those. If it's one step removed though, right? Like if this is going to impact my employee's kid and not directly my employee, then they typically step out uh, of the mm-hmm. conversation for, uh, for worse, <laughs> arguably. Um, Now, what I will say is um, I think they will be there again for those issues that they've traditionally been there on. I don't think that they have um, stepped away from those issues. It's just they have kind of declined to engage in the ones that impact children. And I think that that was noticed by the legislature and and identified as a whole in that um, coalition. Mm -hmm. Well, and Stacey... um... You know, speaking of businesses, it seemed like, you know, after after the uh, the murder of, of George Floyd by Minneapolis police and the protests that followed across the country, that a lot of businesses and institutions, you know, stepped forward to sort of embrace diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts and social justice and and to try to sort of be on the on the right side of where they looked at that time that they thought history was going. Uh, but you know, since then, it seems that there's been a backlash against it. There's been lawmakers and state officials who, uh, you know, warn businesses and, and institutions that they should not, you know, they should not be involved in DEI and they should uh, not invest, you know, their their dollars based on their concerns about, you know, social justice, the environment, other climate change. Uh, so what 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 do you think happened? Yeah, there were, there was a ton of support. This racial reckoning that we had, and people were really invested and wanted to to do the right thing, and they wanted to grow, and they wanted to uh, create a world where uh, racism doesn't exist. A lot of them walked back, um, like you said, the backlash because it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for the dominant culture to. Um, do the self-examination and do the kind of work that it takes to not only, well, before you dismantle the systems and change the structures, 
to do that 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 personal development. Um, it's not development if there aren't some growing pains. If you don't get uncomfortable, you're not learning. Um, that's just the way humans are with difference. This thing that I don't know about, I don't know enough about, or I feel like it threatens me, or maybe I prefer it. My ability to have a complex understanding of it takes making mistakes. It takes uh, putting myself out there and risking. It takes going beyond I own ice and following the golden rule and treating everybody the way I want to be treated. Um, it's a recognition of the platinum rule, which again, for those of us that are the fish in water, as I always say, that doesn't know what water is until it's pulled out, don't even understand our own cultures. And so I say that as a straight, white, heterosexual, or cishet, white woman that speaks English and is a Christian and so on and so forth. So many, many dominant identities for me. Um, I, I think it's the discomfort. It really is. And we are so siloed. We have these bubbles. And with social media, especially, we get into these echo chambers where, you know, we have that like me bias and confirmation bias, and we don't have the ability to experience difference. And typically, we perceive ourselves as probably more skilled than we are when it comes to interpersonal communication and developing relationships, because that's what we intend. We want to do good. We want to be good if we're equipped. And if we haven't had the opportunity to practice across difference, we tend to de-emphasize those differences because it feels better, it's easier. And I think that's a large part of what's gone on. Yeah, well, and in your work, you you have programs and efforts that try to break down those silos and those barriers and bring people, diverse groups of people together to have, you know, to, to have personal relationships, which is, I mean, seems like that's, how you break through this is people don't fear you know what they know and people they know and so that that that's what i mean that seems to be sort of the grassroots solution so why don't you tell us about what some of the work that you've done sure with cultural we use a proprietary tool called the idi the intercultural development inventory and that is a measurement of a, a person's or an organization's capacity to accept and adapt to difference. And it really is a function of your experience. Proximity doesn't make us more culturally agile across difference, because again, we can focus on our commonality and not go there with the difference because not, not that we don't see it, but we don't think it's in, as important as getting along and maintaining everybody's comfort. So that's a tool that we use, but we definitely recommend um, being able to experience differences in a way that is formative and relationship building, thereby building community by deepening your understanding, starting with, if I want to influence somebody, that's not going to be by my talking. It's going to be listening to them. It's going to be listening to them, validating their lived experience. If my lived experience is that I've had marginalization for being a woman or for being fat or for being older, that is my lived experience. Someone else who's not experienced depression has a valid lived experience. Being able to recognize that and acknowledge that and help somebody maintain dignity will allow me to sometime, hopefully, have an influence that they'll reciprocate and do the same for me. And if there are folks that are racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, whatever, they're gonna maintain that and not do any personal growth 
if I walk away from them, if I abandon them, if I don't want to be in relationship. And there, you know, it's not for everybody, but if I have the, the stamina uh, to maintain relationship, so I think of it as um, goal-directed behavior, right? What's my goal? What's my role? And what can I do without losing my soul? But if I really want to have some influence, it is important for me to understand where that other person is coming from. And I've been fortunate to all of my life be surrounded by people who have uh, different political ideologies than I do in my family and in my friendships. And it really is about understanding that, like I said before, I think I said before, people want to do good and want to be good when they're equipped. So if somebody has a different opinion than me, it doesn't mean they're evil or they want to hurt other people. They just have a different understanding than I do. So it really is about um, those opportunities for building relationship. And that's what we do in our work. I always think back to, to 2009, to the, the Supreme Court ruling where uh, marriage equality was made legal in Iowa. And, you know, at first the polling was negative, but once people real I mean, it was an emboldening moment for the LGBTQ community. They, you know, and then people recognize, hey, this is my neighbor. This is a person I work with. These people are getting, I'm, I'm getting invited to a wedding. <laughs> I mean, things like that. Uh, you know, Keenan, is, is that day going to come for, for transgender Iowans? Or, or, I mean, or is that, are we, we're so red now that we're not capable of, of, uh, of accepting that? There is a big partisan lens to it, but um, I mean, there was just polling that came out literally yesterday um, from Data for Progress, and what it showed was that kind of regardless of party affiliation, that knowing a transgender person is a 30-point increase in their likelihood to support um, transgender rights, right? So this, I mean, it's, it's obvious that if you have, um, you know, a new piece of information and you have a, a, and it's about a group and you have a member of that group to cross check that information against that you're immediately going to know whether that's accurate or not. But if you don't have that person to cross check that against, then anything kind of seems plausible at some point. The other piece of data in that that is um, kind of explains a little bit more of, of the moral panic is that only about 30% of likely voters know a transgender person. And so that's kind of why we're in the hole uh, that we are right now, whereas uh, I believe it was something like 70, 75% of likely voters knew a gay person. So that's why we are, is simply more people know a gay person. And so that misinformation doesn't fly as easily um, for that particular group. So um, you know, the the confounding factor, of course, is that uh, gay and, and lesbian and bisexual people are anywhere from seven to 10 percent of the population, depending on how you count it. But transgender people are about half to one percent of the population, depending on how you count it. So there's just far less of them to know, uh, far less of them to encounter, uh, which makes it hard. Now, I guess what I will say is that um, regardless of this, that fear and disinformation and this kind of playbook that we've seen ultimately does have a limited shelf life. Like ultimately people are going to become more familiar with transgender folks. They're going to have them in their lives. And as more transgender people come out and uh, into the open, 
um, that is not going to work as well, which is exactly why they're trying to discourage people from coming out by, you know, reviving the groomer slur and um, connecting anybody who speaks out to it, uh, to butchery and pedophilia and all this other horrible stuff. Um, you know, that 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 whole effort is just to um, combat the thing that they know is coming, which is that there is an expiration date to this tactic. Well, and it's interesting that, uh, yeah, that, that, you know, some of the same people that were uh, just, you know, making all sorts of dire warnings of the end of Western civilization after the, the Supreme Court ruled on marriage are the same people that are out here now, you know, making those same arguments about about transgender kids in schools. Right. It just, you yeah, the shelf life is it's it's uh I'm glad that you say the shelf life is short because it just that product keeps being sold to us, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, the same people that said all the gates of hell were gonna open if we allowed marriage equality to <laughs> to be the law of the land are now very quiet about marriage equality, right? Because they know that their prediction wasn't accurate. Um and it's it's kind of bizarre to me to see um predictions where the evidence is actually in the opposite direction, right? We heard all of these scare stories uh, when the bathroom bill was being debated about how there's going to be assaults in our bathrooms and all this. Trans kids have been able to use the bathroom to match their gender identity since 2007. And like in that 16 year period, there wasn't a single incident that I'm aware of of a trans kid assaulting a cis kid in a bathroom. And so you've got 16 years of evidence to the contrary, and yet that's still the talking point that they go with. Um, again, that might work in the short term for them, but eventually it's going to look very silly. Yeah. And, 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 Can I add, Doc? Oh, go ahead. Yes, please. Yeah. And yeah, I want to speak to that too, Keenan, um, just to add to what you said. We have seen or I have seen in my lifetime, um, people that were afraid to come out of the closet for fear of being abused, right? For fear of violence to, um, for most of the country, a complete normalization. Everybody knows somebody gay, uh, you know, in, in our media and everything, it's normalized, right? It's just a part of how someone is. And for millennia, we've had non-binary people and trans, trans people, and when my child, I have a transgender daughter, was a young person, we really didn't have the language to talk about it. We didn't have the experience. There weren't visible out people as there are becoming more and more of today. So it is just a process of, oh, yeah, this is just another facet of somebody's identity. And we won't have the kind of, you know, visceral reactions that people have when they see something novel. Oh, I've never seen somebody that it, that is uh, masculine presenting, but is expressing feminine, right? And so it, it's just a kind of a, a new thing that we just have to get used to. And as we spend more time and have more community and know more people that are many different ways and cultures and identities and all of that, it will normalize. So I absolutely agree with Keenan that there's a sh short shelf life, especially when we look at uh, Generation Z and their ideas and opinions and we can all probably recognize that it's a political strategy right there has to be a wedge issue below uh your folks your base and unfortunately for our um lgbtqi plus folks this is it especially our trans folks 
So it is, it's gamesmanship, political gamesmanship. Yeah, I was going back. Comes with it. Yeah, I recently went back and, and watched um, the Ballot Measure Nine documentary, which was made in. 1995 around um, the Oregon ballot measure nine back in 1992. And my mentor, Donna Redwing uh, was a big part of, of the fight against that. And I mean, when you listen to the opposition, the claims they are making are just so outrageous and detached from reality. And anybody listening to that today can see that, right? Even on the conservative side, they know that that is complete nonsense. And that's how (laughs) it seems to be right now that we are about transgender people. Mm -hmm. It's just not everybody sees it as ridiculous yet, because again, not everybody knows a trans person, but those arguments are going to appear just as ridiculous in the next decade. And that reframing happens, right? So we went from, uh, with marriage equality, what people are doing in the bedroom that people were worried about to families, right? And love and being able to 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 love who you love and to raise children and all of that and and it was a much more wholesome i guess for lack of a better word and more palatable to a lot of folks that might have been opposed in the past so that that reframing again is important um and i i think talking about the construct of gender and how we got to what you know a lot of people have an opinion about god made a man and a woman and that's all there is um, there's so much more science and just evidence, um, that we can draw on. Well, and it, I mean, that seems like, I mean, that sort of battle of ideas, I mean, that's, I mean, they're, they're trying to wage this effort in schools, you know, in, in younger grades, they, you know, there's, there's a law now that you, you know, you can't talk about LGBTQ concepts you know the fact that these families exist and that people live in your community and and uh that you can't do that for in k through sixth grade which a lot of school districts have sixth seventh and eighth grade in one building so that's spills over into junior high uh it's just i mean it seems like they're they're trying to sort of you know erase that from the education being being uh administered to kids. And I, I guess I just wondered what either of you thinks the impact of that is going to be going forward as to how people sort of, uh, you know, deal with this, deal with the change, you know, social change. I mean, I guess what I would say is, is there's two two things here. Number one, is it going to be harmful to LGBTQ kids? Yes, it sends a message to them that like their existence is not welcome, or that that talking about them is somehow uh, controversial or, or makes them unworthy, et cetera. Uh, but number two, I would say in terms of the information, that's very much a toothpaste back in the tube situation, right? Like that's not happening. <laughs> it's just not going to, the internet exists, right? And trans people um, are occupying now major positions in popular culture. Um, and so it's not realistic to think that just prohibiting teachers from talking about it means that that is somehow going away or that that's changing um, somebody's mind about it. Do I think that it's ultimately going to harm youth and their families? Absolutely it will. But do I think that this changes like the cultural landscape around LGBTQ people or in any way changes public opinion in a negative way? I don't, I don't think so. My money is that it doesn't do that at all. And and with regard to the you know restriction on books, uh, 
I mean, the supporters of that emphasize that they don't want uh, kids to to access depictions of of sex. Uh, but then you look at the lists of authors that are, and you see, you know, authors of color. You see LGBTQ mm -hmm. authors, and then you start wondering whether it's really about depictions of sex, or it's or it's more about, uh, you know, people learning new ideas from people who have lived lives that are far different than their own. Yeah, absolutely. And the Dwayne Register did a study on all the all the challenges, right? And like 90% of them were people with marginalized identities were the authors. And so it's yeah, it's it gets to be a little bit transparent when you actually <laughs> dig into the data. Yes, they have a um kind of a non-biased rationale for it, but the actual implementation tells a very very different story uh it's also very instructive when you point out a book that they like that has a sex act in it and all of a sudden it's oh well that's not graphic that's not really a depiction yeah it is it's just you don't like the implication <laughs> that your book is now going to come off the shelf because it fits the criteria right i mean uh, i think my go-to example has been 1984 there is a sex act in that book there is a description of a sex act in the book it's not particularly graphic but the law doesn't say graphic depiction. It says depiction, right? And so Urbandale pulled it off the shelves and everybody cried foul and said, that's not what we meant, blah, 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 blah. Well, that's the law you wrote. Now, whether or not you put in additional guidance to say not this book is a different matter and whether or not um, that's not what you meant is a different matter, but that's what you wrote. And that's going to have the force of of pulling books off the shelf. So um, would I rather that people adopt a very narrow thing and take as few books off the shelf as possible? Yes. But does that mean that that's not what you wrote? No, that's an absurd characterization. Stacey, did you have anything to add to the, you know, the education aspect of this? Yeah, I apologize. I uh, lost my internet for a moment. Um, as a former classroom teacher, I certainly have a lot of opinions and could get on a soapbox. Um, I think that, um, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. I just recovered from COVID. Oh. Yeah. Um, brain fog is real. It is, yeah, it right. is real. Yeah, yeah, forgive me, forgive me. Um, and I, so I don't know all of what, what Keenan responded with, but I know that the unintentional consequences of, oh, we don't want to sexualize children well, then you can't show heterosexual couples either. And you, again, what what are you really intending here and, and what's going to be the impact? And, you know, I, I'm opposed to censorship in any form, but I, and I'm also about um, protecting children, but also empowering them to face what they're going to face in the real world. I've worked with a school district and, you know, they were trying to work on racism, right? And they had all these students come back from, from, college their first year to say we had no idea we were not prepared we didn't talk about this in a real way in a meaningful way so if we want to prepare uh, students with the um, for a global multicultural world with 21st century skills then we need to prepare them for what, for what they're going to encounter and that means all kinds of ideas so yeah that's all yeah. to say about that yeah that's the other kind of interesting development that I've seen that is kind of bizarre to me is there's there's kind of two trigger words that people really gravitate toward. And I've seen 
criticism in particular of graphic novels simply because they have the word graphic in them and so people assume that there's going to be a graphic depiction and then the second one is anything involving sexual orientation which is you know about who people have relationship with and how they're oriented it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with like sex acts but because the word sexual is in it and it's all like kind of automatically associated with sex which i think is a huge mistake and it's been a barrier to a lot of like sincere conversations that i've had with folks we've got some questions from the folks out there watching uh here's one it says equity and inclusion are core values of many nonprofits doing work in iowa but speaking out feels dangerous when we receive state funding what is your advice for agencies walking this line either of you are welcome to to take that uh, it is about relationship building. So talk about reframing. It's about getting to know each other. If we're going to love each other as humans, we have to follow that platinum rule, right? Instead of the, I don't know if I already said this, the golden rule following Iowa nice, everybody gets along. But if we really want to, and I'm, I'm a Christian, so I'm going to go there. My greatest charge is to love my neighbor. And so it's my responsibility to learn how to love my neighbor and their responsibility to teach me how to love them. It's our responsibility together to build that relationship and build a community that we want to see, co-create the community that we want to see. And, you know, that's what, what peace is. Peace is building. War is destruction. And again, it's my universal belief about people that they want to be able to be welcoming. We agree everybody deserves to be welcome. Everybody deserves to have the skills to be able to be welcoming and framing it as it's belonging. It's honoring people and it is leveraging our differences to make a greater outcome, whether that's our product or our service or whatever the community looks like. Well, and Keenan, uh, it seems like, I mean, this is, this is just another example of, of a chilling effect. I mean, exactly and we've seen that say, yeah. we've seen that spawned by so many aspects of this. Teachers are afraid to teach certain books; they're not and and concepts and and you know, and universities are now afraid of you know what they can do for DEI. And I mean, the list goes on and on. I mean, that's that's sort of the the power behind the letter of the law in in, in these cases, isn't it? Yeah, I mean. I've spent way more of my uh, last year or so talking to um, organizations, companies, et cetera, um, about something that I never thought I would really have to talk to them about. And it's kind of two concepts generally lumped into one category. And the two concepts are how to respond to terrorist threats and how to respond to authoritarian regimes, um, both of which a lot of folks have, have had to deal with lately. Um, and one thing that we see over and over and over again with these kind of authoritarian models is that they recruit people to do their work for them and they recruit people to cover for them, right? And one of the ways they do that is by withholding resources and saying, if you don't cover for us, if you don't shut up, then we will bleed you of your funding or we will do that. We'll take away your teaching license or we will you know, do X, Y, or Z. And, I, and my biggest message to those folks has always been don't help them. Like if they're going to do something bad to you, let them do it. 
right? They're, they're planning on doing it anyway. And all you're doing by responding in that way is showing them that there is no bottom to what you are willing to acquiesce to, right? Because as soon as you agree to the first thing, they're going to come back and say, okay, now there's a second thing that we need to do. Otherwise, your funding is going away. And then there's going to be a third thing. And then there's going to be a fourth thing. And pretty soon, your values really don't exist anymore because they've been able to whittle them away with the promise of funding. Um, your values only exist so far as you're willing to incur consequences for them. If you are not willing to incur consequences for them, they are not your values. Um, that is just something that you like to say about yourself. That's a very different thing. If you're not willing to put something on the line, whether it be funding, resources, your personal um, reputation, whatever it is, authoritarians are coming for those things like they know where the pressure points are and so you need to draw a hard line in the sand and determine what your values are and stick to them and if that means that you don't get funding the next year that might be what it means we're having those really tough conversations here at our organization too and i anticipate some of our funding streams are going to dry up because of that we recently just had uh ihhs for instance invite us to do a um, a summer kind of talk, lunch and learn webinar type thing uh, about uh, the LGBTQ community and um, the risk of suicide around that. It was literally, the title of the presentation was literally LGBTQ 101. And they asked us to take all the LGBTQ aspects out of it, take away the information about sexual orientation, take away the information about gender identity, take away the information about how the legislation is impacting people differentially. Uh, and we said, no, pull our funding, do it. Uh, we double dare you because we're not going to lie on your behalf. And that's what I would tell organizations. Don't lie on the behalf of people who are just going to take your funding away for something the year after that. It's not going to stop. Yeah, that's, I appreciate uh, that. Can I speak up for sure. classroom yep. teachers? Yep. So, you know, I feel like I, I got out before this, right? So I've been out of the classroom for seven years. Um, I did have parents that you know, I heard from when I was teaching um, seventh graders global studies and we were learning about the Middle East and we learned about Judaism and Christianity and Islam. And um, I had the privilege to stand up and I had the support of my principal. And so the folks now, um, the fear is real. The law doesn't really have any teeth yet. They're not coming for people's licenses. They're, it's like, don't do this, but there's no real... Um, consequence written into the law, but the, the fear is out there. And we've experienced it with our cultural programs in the classroom where somebody got scared and thought, oh, is this, is this CRT or is this divisive concept or can we do this? So I think it's really about the education piece. You can still talk about divisive concepts. You just don't say it's that white people are bad or that America is a whole is racist. It doesn't mean you can't. So I'll navigate what is allowed under the law because you could still talk about it under the law. You really can. So I think that um, those of us who are, are able to reach out and provide some opportunity, some, some learning, um, not just for, for teachers, educators, but also for families and, and their children. Uh, you know, a lot of those decisions are going to be made at, you know, local school level mm -hmm. as far as curriculum and things. And uh, judging by driving around my 
the Linmar School District, it, it seems like there's a school there's a school board vote <laughs> coming up. I'm seeing a lot of signs, uh, and of course here you, we're the we were sort of the the district that uh, Republican candidates at various levels like to uh, to uh, attack due to the gender support plan that the school district uh, put in put in place. Uh, Keenan, you're you're out there, look, you know, surveying the landscape. What what are the school board elections looking like to you this this fall? Yeah, well, we're we're getting involved in them for the first time ever. Um, we have mm -hmm. never been involved in school board elections before, but this was uh, there was an acknowledgement among our team that this was one of the only ways that we could stop the bleeding from the legislature um, this year. Uh, was to put people in place who are going to interpret some of this really harmful stuff in the least harmful way possible, who are going to keep as many books on the shelves as they could, who are going to keep, you know, as many kids alive, quite frankly, uh, as possible. And so, yeah, we're explicitly making endorsements. We're explicitly organizing for some of these candidates, which is not a position that we would have ever been in had the legislature not um, done what it just did. So this is entirely reactive to their moves. This is not proactive um, on our part. Now, one of the interesting things is what I'm hearing from a lot of candidates on the ground is the number one question that they're getting on the doors, even from registered Republicans, is, are you one of those book banners? Um, the book banning thing is actually very not popular, uh, <laughs> even among Republicans, even among folks who would identify themselves as, as kind of staunch social conservatives, book banning, not great, because they know that there ultimately is going to be consequences for them as well, that there are going to be books that come off the shelves that they like, right? Um, everybody knows that if you put in a censorship regime, regime uh, it's ultimately the censor that is kind of the question, <laughs> and, and um, there is no sort of neutral uh, censorship. That doesn't exist. So what I'm seeing a lot in these school board races is, number one, that focus on censorship, and then number two, candidates running on a platform that the legislature has already really resolved for them, um, running on issues of um, you know, parental rights and making sure that parents have – well, the legislature has already mandated that. Right? Like the legislature has already mandated restrooms. I see people running on restrooms. The legislature has already mandated this, you know, sex acts in books coming off the shelves, um, which very much reminds me of, of how they responded when the legislature had mandated all the masking stuff that they wanted and all the COVID stuff that they wanted. And then they were really left without a platform and they started just kind of dismantling things and um, scaring people about other three-letter acronyms. So I imagine that's what's coming uh, in the relatively near future is they will shift away from the LGBTQ stuff because, again, already resolved. I mean, it's like a fun issue for them to campaign on, I guess, but that their policy platforms are nothing that they actually have to act on at all. So they're going to have a lot of time on their hands um, should they win, which I suspect that they won't. We've uh, got another question from the audience uh, that... I, this this strikes me as being a navigating the uh, the culture war by turning your car in one of the directions toward a border. Uh, they're saying with the political climate seemingly unlikely to change in the near future, why should LGBTQ plus people stay in Iowa or pursue opportunities here? And either of you can you know talk about uh, you know on a personal level. I'm sure that you know there's. Your, your daughter, you know, made a choice where she wanted to live, I'm sure. And so, yeah, either one of you want to talk about that. 
I would defer to Keenan because I'm not queer. Um, <laughs> you have a queer kid though. So I, I, I do, do ultimately want to hear your thoughts because that's going to be a big part of your life, right? Um, look, I'm of, I'm of two thoughts on this. Um, I, I don't begrudge a single person who leaves to improve their life, right? I don't begrudge a single person who changes their zip code because there are more rights um, for them in a different zip code. That said, do I think that it's a good idea for LGBTQ people to flee the state? No. Do I think that it's a good idea for them to flee any state? Not really. Um, and the reason is, let's imagine that we got every queer person out of the state today, right? Like, tomorrow there would be another queer kid born and so it would just and then they would be all alone and with nobody else to create community and nobody else to um, speak up in the same way that a queer person can speak up on behalf of their own community so uh, I think there are, are reasonable um, positions in both directions I would never ask a queer person to stay simply to do that but I would say you have to take this into consideration that ultimately there is power in having a queer community even in an area where our um, our very existence is kind of a political controversy I have to say that if my daughter were not grown, it would be a whole lot of thinking about what to do, because if she couldn't get gender affirming care, that would be paramount. We would need to go where she could get it. So I certainly understand it. Um, it takes it takes all of us to do what we need to do to take care of ourselves and and build community influence the way that we can. So I'm very gratified that she's still here and that she can be out and be, um, I mean, she's fantastic. She's a fantastic person. She's a wonderful human being. So the more folks that get to see that, um, the more more hearts and minds, I think, will, will change and that normalization process will happen. She is very, very male presenting and even at sometimes male expressing and so having so many different varieties helps us all know that, again, it's, it's a construct, gender is a construct, a social construct, and that however any, somebody wants to express is really up to them. And I love like going to Pride and that it is a place for people and people like me, somebody that's been heavy my whole adult life, that is, is completely comfortable in what I'm wearing and what my body looks like and because it's so accepting and it's not again that construct of beauty what's beautiful there's there's impact on that too that we get to decide um even though we're you know informed by our culture by our rearing and by our experiences in society and all of that wouldn't it be wonderful if we could decide together and anyway I'm rambling the one no. additional thing I'll I'll say to this uh, too is just that you know while while I'm not sold on every queer person leaving, I certainly understand why it's not attractive to queer to queer <laughs> people to move here, right? Like that is definitely uh, a tough sell and not one that I'm willing to make. Uh, <laughs> to be completely frank, at this point, and so um, you know the the business community who has always had a top priority around um, workforce and and getting people to come here and work these kinds of policies are running exactly opposite to that goal of attracting new folks like we are arbitrarily excluding this entire category of people not just queer people but 
people, cis, straight people with queer kids as well, yeah. um, who are, you know, very qualified. And I already know of, you know, a top lawyer who left the state because they had a trans kid. I know of a medical specialist who left the state that because they had a trans kid. I know several food service workers who left the state um, because they have trans kids. These are people who are essential to our communities, right? They make our communities run. Um, our rural communities can't lose many more medical specialists and still provide the services that they need to their residents. So this has impacts that are far greater than just the queer community. This is hurting us as a state. Well, and it seems like, you know, Iowa kind of has a split personality with regard to the, you know, state government and, uh, you know, you've got this legislature that's doing this kind of stuff and the governor signing it, but then you've got these efforts like this is Iowa and these efforts to get people to come here and they, and they, you know, they, they feature young, diverse, professional people. I mean, they had the, they had the, the deal, you know, it was a few years ago where they set up a fake real estate office in New York city and to show everyone, show these people how much money they, how much house they could get for a lot less money in Iowa. And one of the couples that was there was a, was a same-sex couple in that, in that particular video. And yet the government is not, yeah. is not, uh, is not uh, helping the cause of, 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 you know, recruiting young, professional, diverse people with, with these kind of policies, right? Yeah, I mean, it feels a lot like putting a Band-Aid on like an amputated limb or something, right? Like <laughs> these little piddly efforts um, really pale in comparison to the idea that your kid can't get the health care that their doctor has recommended or that your kid can't use the appropriate restroom in school or that your kid can't even hear or read books about people who are like them or, um, you know, if folks get their way around religious exemptions next year that you can't get the health care that you need simply because you are a queer person. Um, that's going to be a bigger deal than, you uh, you know that that a gallon of milk is maybe a little cheaper here um i i think a lot of folks are willing to pay a lot more to make sure that their kids are safe and it, it seems like part of the the issue with people deciding whether to to go or stay you know there's also this aspect that was touched on in the question from the audience that you know the, the politics here seems locked in it doesn't seem mm -hmm. like there's much of a chance that, you know, Democrats are going to have a resurgence and we're going to go back to being sort of a purple state with a divided legislature that curbs the worst political impulses that of the, of our, you know, of our dueling wings. Uh, I mean, is that, is that part of it? Is that, the, or do you, do you have more hope than that, that about the politics and either of you can take that on? I totally do. I totally do not to put the, the burden on millennials and Gen Z, but they are a great voting block. And they are just more progressive in their thinking. They're socially progressive. They might be fiscally conservative. We don't have a party where that fits exactly. But um, yeah, I have a ton of hope. I, I, I don't know. Maybe I would leave too, right? I have a ton, I have a ton of hope. And our foreign-born population, right? I don't know who remembers this, but when I was a kid, we had six congressional districts in Iowa. We're down to four. And if we didn't have our foreign-born population here, we'd only have three. 
And so that combination of things, and as, as folks in the rural communities are, are looking to be more inclusive and to learn about their neighbors and to attract people so that they don't have these dying communities, all the school consolidation that, that happened, people can't even go to school near where they live. Um, if we wanna reframe, let's reframe it to the bottom line. Communities are gonna die out. Businesses are gonna die out to Keenan's point, right? If you wanna attract the best and the brightest, you're going to have to get on board with honoring the diversity of your employees. And that goes for people that aren't even necessarily marginalized. We all have intersecting identities and different styles and, and, and being um, somebody who has a, a large capacity to accept and adapt to difference helps you navigate those differences. That person who's acting like that and it bugs you well, when you get to know them, you're like, oh, I know why they're like that, or I like all these other things about them, so I'll put up with that. It really is um, deepening your complexity of understanding of people, because culture is communication, and communication is culture, and getting to that deeper level allows us to invite, to welcome, to include, and I have tremendous hope for this state, and I think a purple state is an inclusive state. Right. Again, honoring the different perspectives and valuing the lived experiences. So I don't mind being a blue state, but I think a purple state is really more inclusive. And I think, I mean, organizing is ultimately a hopeful endeavor. Um, I don't think I could do this work if I wasn't ultimately hopeful that we could, um, you know, make things better for people. Um, I guess I just I always just think of Kansas <laughs> uh, during the Brownback era and how there was eventually a point where it was too far, right? Like, and I don't know what that point is in Iowa, but these folks are really pushing limits um, mm -hmm. at this point. And they really think that they can do just anything that they want without consequences, which is exactly where Brownback's Kansas was. Um, and at some point they're gonna take it too far and it's gonna ultimately, the tide is going to turn. Now, does it turn enough that we have a blue state? Probably not, at least not in the next couple decades. Um, but does it turn to a point where folks ultimately are starting to moderate themselves? I think that's a much more reasonable expectation. And, and it is one that I hold um, that that we will hit a point, and, and my belief is that that was this year, but that we will hit a point at some point in the near future where this goes too far and where people recognize that their government has ultimately been taken over by a group of extremists who are more interested in um, their ideological goals than they are with the practical realities of their constituents. Alongside the, you know, the optimism uh, for maybe change in the future, what, 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 where do you think these issues are headed when the legislature comes back <laughs> with a campaign next year? I mean, what, what, what are you concerned about? Either you, Keenan, you're, you're at the state house a lot yeah i i think the the big two words next year are religious exemptions as i've said uh, many times before um and i think the the big ticket item that they would really like to get across the finish line is what's called a rifra or a religious freedom restoration act which is um uh, a bit of legislation that would essentially allow people to pick and choose which laws they're going to follow based on whatever religious beliefs they're professing at the time um, as I said, I expect the business community to come out um, fairly aggressively against that because I think there are obvious <laughs> uh, problems for them in that kind of uh, a regime. 
but uh, if they can't get that, I expect that they will try to do um, what one of their other bills was this year, which was religious exemptions specifically for healthcare providers and facilities, which I think can be extremely damaging as well. And I think for relatively obvious reasons, right? If people can pick and choose their patients based on protected characteristics, that's a bad situation for pretty much everybody except for the providers who just get to do whatever they want. Um, Aside from that, I do expect that they will try to push boundaries on some of their victories that they've already gotten, right? They'll take the K through six, don't say gay, don't say trans, and try to expand it as far as they can, whether that's K through eight or K through 12. Um, they will continue their assault on DEI efforts. Um, one of the things that was maybe less noticed this year was there was kind of initially a bill to completely ban all DEI programs and spending on our college campuses completely. Um, and then that was paired back to a freeze with a study um, about DEI efforts on campuses. But we know that that study is ultimately, it's not a fact-finding mission, right? The conclusion has already been determined. It is to get ammunition for their predetermined conclusion so that they can then next year say this is what we learned and this is why we want to ban it completely um and so those are the kinds of things that we will be watching for are just like continued gradations of some of the wins that they've already had plus a focus on some of that religious exemption stuff do you think uh, do you think there's any chance that they try to remove gender identity from the civil rights code i mean that that seems mm -hmm. to be getting in their way with regard to some of these school you know, public accommodation rules and things like that. We haven't seen the court challenges yet, but they're probably coming at some point. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think that might be a little bit more than they can chew. Uh, I'm sure that they will attempt again, but I know that there is at least a decent portion of that caucus, even among the folks that typically don't support us, that believe that removing an entire class from the Civil Rights Act is a bridge too far. And that, I believe, is another area where the business community would say, hey, whoa, 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 <laughs> like, um, you know, we, we need to keep these basic protections around housing and things like this for our transgender employees. And so this is, again, that one-to-one -one relationship where they're not going to be able to avoid going up against some of the less typical folks. Um, you know, they don't just have to deal with me and they don't have to just deal with Iowa Safe Schools and uh, ACLU and Interfaith Alliance and kind of the normal players. They're going to deal with all sorts of other folks who are typically more on their side of the aisle. And that's often a very difficult position for them to be in. So I think Obviously, they're going to try it. <laughs> I mean, they've tried it for the past four years in a row or so. There's no no chance that that bill isn't filed and at least looked at. Uh, but do I think that that is a successful effort? I would put that kind of at the bottom of my list of worries compared to some of the other things that I just listed. Is it possible? Sure. But I think it's one of the less plausible things. So we're getting down to the wire here. I was going to ask you, uh, you know, if, if, if you encounter an Iowan that doesn't like the way things are going on on in this culture war what what's your main recommendation to how they can have some impact build relationship yeah i i totally agree i think this divisive climate the only the, the opposite of this is community right um and so 
Uh, and that isn't just like, you know, building relationships with legislators either. I think you should do that, obviously. And I think you should uh, volunteer with organizations that are working on things you care about and volunteer with your local mutual aid organizations and, and things like that. But I also think that you should care about what your neighbor uh, needs, right? <laughs> like if they um, are struggling and they need something, that's that's maybe somewhere to look as well and start building the relationships that are really in close proximity to you. And then you'll eventually start having conversations. There's there's like no way as humans that we don't have conversations about things that matter to us. Um, so starting with, you know, the your neighbors, starting with your neighborhood organization or your community organizations or your church, uh, your workplace, all the things that you're kind of already involved in just by proximity, but being a little bit more intentional with those, I think that's a great place for folks to start, especially if like going up to the legislature or having coffee with a legislator seems terrifying, don't start there. Start smaller, build those relationships and get to that point where you can have those conversations. I yeah, add I... one more thing if we yep. have a minute. Um, thinking about depolarizing within, right? We get into those echo chambers again and we vent and, and particularly when lives are on the line, it's very important to fight. However, when we are so polarized, we can overgeneralize and we can miss those opportunities to connect with people who have different ideas than we do. Um, it takes all of us, we need to be in the fight, right? Again, there are hills upon which to die. But I try to operate with, um, yeah, I think I'm right. I've done my research. I've learned this, but I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I could be missing something. So sort of having that reframing your own mm -hmm. uh, view of the world and that, gosh, there may be something here that I could learn from and learn about and I'm open to it. Yeah, yeah, having that curiosity, yeah. Yeah, lead yeah. with curiosity. Describe good intentions to others. Great advice, and I. this has been a great conversation. I thank you both for for uh, agreeing to join the panel. And uh, I'm going to thank our sponsors real quick, Cedar Rapids Bank and Trust, Inclusive CR, and ITC Midwest helped bring you this uh, conversation. So appreciate that help. And uh, we didn't solve the culture war. I don't I don't think we lost it, but either so <laughs> good news, I guess. That's the hope. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, Thanks. Thank you. thank you to both. All right, there it is. That was the Iowa Ideas 2023 session on navigating the culture wars in Iowa. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. And if you missed Iowa Ideas this year, all of our sessions will be archived and available to watch online. You can find those at the Iowa Ideas website, which is iowaideas.com. And more specifically, if you're looking for those session replays, you can find those at iowaideas.com slash replays. So that's it for this unique episode of On Iowa Politics. I'm glad we were able to bring this to you. I'm only sad we weren't able to have our normal podcast on a Friday the 13th. I have a feeling we would have had a little fun with that. But we'll be back with you next week. Until then, if you're not already, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcasts. And also be sure to subscribe to the free On Iowa Politics newsletter, which you can do at thegazette.com. Johnny on Point will play us out this week. If you know an Iowa band or musician who should be featured on the podcast, please send us a sound file. For our whole podcast gang who got the week off, and our producer Stephen Colbert, I'm Aaron Murphy. Thanks for listening.
Get a daily update from the Gazette with our daily news podcast. Add it to your podcast player or your Alexa-friendly device to get a bite-sized local news update each day. Check it out at thegazette.com slash podcasts.